technology, ethics, globalization, and skincare collide in this episode of Staging the Nation. We'd like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. Pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, we shine a light on some of the Australian writers that have grappled with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. In this episode of the series, I am absolutely thrilled to be speaking with Anchuli Felicia King about her groundbreaking play, White Pearl. Things are heating up in the oh-so-cool Singapore headquarters of Clear Day, an upstart player in the Asian skincare game. Sales of their new range, White Pearl Skin Whitening Cream, are going through the roof and the ambitious team of young women have their eyes to the sky. That is until their new TV commercial is leaked online and starts going viral for all the wrong reasons. As the views climb, the mood in the office nosedives and the team scrambles to contain the fallout and save more than just their jobs in the process. With a shrewd eye, acerbic wit and machine gun dialogue, Felicia King deftly unravels toxic corporate culture, the complexity of Pan-Asian relations and racism in a wildly entertaining way. And truly, Felicia King is a multidisciplinary artist of Thai Australian descent who works primarily in live theatre. Felicia's playwriting debut in 2019 at 25 years of age, with three original plays staged at major institutions around the globe. The Royal Court Theatre's main stage production of Felicia's play White Pearl, which we're discussing today, marked her professional debut in May 2019. Writers including Carol Churchill, David Hare, Lucy Kirkwood, Debbie Tucker Green and Samuel Beckett all enjoyed their professional debuts at the court. White Pearl has since been produced in original productions in Australia and the United States. Felicia's original play Golden Shield had its world premiere in 2019 at Melbourne Theatre Company. In 2019, Slaughterhouse premiered a 25A in an indie season of theatre at Belvoir in Sydney. The play was previously selected as part of Melbourne Theatre Company's Cyber Electric 28 readings. Felicia's play Keen was the recipient of the American Shakespeare Center's Shakespeare's New Contemporaries Award and was it produced in 2020 or did it not quite happen? It was cancelled. It was cancelled. It will be produced later this year. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Felicia has worked as a writer, a dramaturg, a sound designer, a projection designer and a creative consultant with a wide range of companies including Punch Drunk, Playco, Roundabout Theatre. The list goes on and on and on. I'm not going to read them all. Welcome, Felicia. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much. Um, it's really lovely to have you as part of this conversation and I'd really like to start where with a question that I've asked every single person who sat in that chair, so I'm going to ask you as well. Okay. Um, I'm really interested in that moment where you decide that something is a play. When a playwright goes, this idea or this collection of ideas is a play, what was that for White Pearl? It was during my second year of grad school in New York I had been seeing a bunch of these ads going viral on my Facebook feed. And I think reading the comments section maybe was the moment where I went, oh, this is a play, because it was just such a fascinating thematic lightning rod that allowed you to talk about intra-Asian racism. It allowed you to talk about beauty standards around the world. It allowed you to talk about cancel culture. Mm. Just reading through the comments, I started to realize like, 
oh, there's so much more to this issue than just a racially insensitive ad going viral. So I think that was the galvanizing moment. And then there was a sort of follow-up galvanizing moment, which was long before I wrote the play, I wrote like a cost list of the characters that I thought could populate this office. And I just set myself a challenge to write these really distinct Asian characters who were like hyper-specific in mm. their sort of like linguistic, ethnic, cultural specificity. And when I wrote that cost list, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hyper-specific, and we'll, we'll come to that yeah, in a moment. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> and so you, so, so what was the process? So you had this cast list. Mm-hmm. Then conceptually you went, this, this could work with mm-hmm. this cast list. And then how did you start the process of pulling the world together? Um, well, I, I wrote like a couple of pages of really bad dialogue for it. Um, and that was around the time I was, I was being forced to take a playwriting class as the context for this because I was studying <laughs> dramaturgy and, and they made us take playwriting as like an empathy exercise <laughs> so that we would know how hard playwriting was. So we had to bring in pages every week. And so for that class, I brought in some terrible pages of this half-baked idea, but the, uh, the dialogue sounded all wrong. Like I was mm. just aping all of these American playwrights that we were reading um, and not doing a very good job of it, like Mamet and, um, we were reading a lot of like Mamet and T- Tennessee Williams and those sort of like quintessentially American playwrights. So I was writing this like really forced stichomythic dialogue and it mm-hmm. just didn't feel, the thematic explorations were there, but the characters weren't there at all, even though I had this hyper-specific cost list. So then I went away and then over that summer, um, between my first and second semester, I started a new draft of the play and set myself the challenge of like, what if I actually wrote the play the way that I think these characters sound? Mm. And and then it was like an incredibly fast, the way that like only your first play ever comes out that quickly. Like I just wrote it in two days. My roommates like didn't see me emerge from my room and they were yeah. like, what are you doing? And I was like, I think I'm writing a play. <laughs> Amazing. And then emerged with this draft and gave it to my roommate who then ended up directing the production at the Royal Court. And I was like, Here's a play. Let's do a reading of it. And it, it, yeah, it was super fast after there. Amazing. And with your, I, I mean, I'm hoping that on the back of this, people who haven't read the play hunt it out and read it. <laughs> um, on the back of this conversation, but there will be people listening who who are familiar with the work. Um, h- how did you begin to kind of find the story in writing that first draft? Yeah. And I've, uh, I've really never had an experience like that since of just discovering what it was while I was writing it. Again, it's that sort of like first play magic that it pours out of you. And and the tent poles of the plot, even though it's been through a bunch of rewrites, came mm. out in that first draft. Yeah. Um, it, it just felt like the play emerged exactly as it wanted to be. Um, and I wish I could replicate that experience, but it's never happened again. <laughs> Since then, it's constant hard work and redrafting. Yeah. And it, it's never and planning ahead of time. But that was just perfect. <laughs> Do you think that the story came more easily because you knew the people in the world so well? Partially. And partially I think I had been thinking about theatre for a long time before I ever sat down to write a play. So I knew, like, I just wanted the plot motor to be really intense. So in a, in a similar way that, like, the action of the play is this... Um, unfolding disaster that gets worse and worse and worse. It's kind of easy to write that because you're just thinking of the next worst thing that can happen. <laughs> um, and so 
but but I had seen a lot of theater at that point. I'd been living in New York and going to see theater like every week. So mm. I just I knew uh, what good disasters on stage looked like to me, or what my taste was, I guess. So it just came really easily. What's a good disaster? A good disaster is one that uh, the effects are irreversible um, and that have sincere ethical and emotional reverberations mm. for the characters involved. Playwriting one. Wow, <laughs> with, with Felicia. Amazing. Um, let's talk about, I mean, super hyper-specific characters. Yeah. Like you're, like it's a, in some parts of the world, you'd open that cast list and go, shit. Yeah. Um, and a lot of theatres have yeah. been like, I don't think we can actually do yeah. this. <laughs> Um, but before we get to, to that to that cast list, what um, can you tell us a little bit about, in your words, what 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 this play is about? The play is about um, an advertising campaign gone wrong for whitening cream, and in that you get to talk about the ongoing legacy of colonialism in Asia and in corporate culture in Asia. You get to talk about. Um, a globalized racial politics as it exists on the internet and how cancel culture and virality has uh, turbocharged that discourse and made it impossible to have nuanced conversations about it. You get to talk about, um, you know, beauty standards as they exist in different countries and why they are the way they are and the universality of uh, how the cosmetics industry capitalizes on women's shame, but also how specifically uh, hyper-specific that is in different parts of Asia and what the history is there. And the play ultimately is about language, mm. the way that language and humor can be weaponized. Um, and I think in some ways all my plays are about, you know, the the strange conflux of globalization and digitization that leads to weaponized language, language used in service of different power structures. That was a very succinct capitulation, but (laughs) that's wonderful, (laughs) wonderful, wonderful. That's kind of what the play's about. It's also like a dark comedy. Yeah, it's funny. Silly millennial stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So great. Um, These hyper-specific people, I mean, I've just pulled one example here of Priya described as Indian Singaporean, Mumbai accent rounded out by years of British education. Um, and then it goes on and on and on and becomes even more specific yeah. for some of the, <laughs> the characters. Why was it important for you to have these hyper-specific people in this world? Well, the first thing to say is that I always expected that in putting those hyper-specific uh, descriptions and I was describing characters and knew that the needs of the production and casting would mean that there was some, there was going to be conversation about it, you know? And it was never like, you have to find this person who mm. fits this exact criteria or the play doesn't happen. It was always meant to articulate the worldview, language, frame of reference that that character is coming from. Yeah. But also it was an aid to me when I was writing the play, you know, yeah. because I started with that cause list. I needed to know how they sounded in my head mm. in order to write them. Um, and when it came time to do the first published edition of the play and they were asking me to do my author's note, uh, and there's a big section that Samuel French asks you to do about costing requirements. I just wrote, don't be a dick. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the that's the rule of thumb for it. Like, they're meant to describe characters and then in costing those characters, just engage with it in good faith and, and have some degree of 
I don't know, cultural competency mm. and trying to work out how to do that with care. Mm. So don't be a dick when costing the play, you know, like, and so whenever I would get crazy requests, like, can we do this play in Iceland? I, I would be like, would you have to be a dick in costing the play in Iceland? And the answer is like, probably. Yeah. <laughs> then it's it's probably not worth it's doing. It's not time yeah. right now to do it in Iceland. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's right. my own stereotyping about Iceland. But I just thought, I, da- I doubt that you could do this play in Iceland. Look, I'm not an expert on <laughs> the population of Iceland. But, uh, totally. But don't be a dick is a pretty, <laughs> pretty good mantra for things. But, you know, one of the things that I really love about the play and um, it's, it, it, it offers, by, by presenting this variety of women, it offers us the opportunity to really see some of the politics between mm. and that intra-Asian kind of uh, conversation that you were talking about. Yeah. What, what, what was it that you were trying to tap into with that? I mean, I think that there is a tendency in Western culture to see Asia as a monolith mm. and a monoculture, and particularly on Western stages, there is this sort of like interchangeability of Asianness that I was experiencing very acutely in the States. And so I really wanted to highlight like, this is the difference between somebody who is Thai, who was raised in California versus somebody who is, you know, from Mumbai raised in Britain. And this is the difference between somebody who is mainland Chinese, never left China. Mm. Um, that there, there is some universality to their experience and that they're all impacted by the legacy of colonization and globalization, but they have hyper-specific experiences. Mm. The other thing, the other reason that I wrote the play was that I, by virtue of being Asian, knew a lot of Asian actors and knew, I was kind of writing for the people I knew um, that I knew weren't getting good roles. And often it was because they were non-native English speakers, particularly when you're like at acting grad school in the States, you just get shortchanged because the professors want you to sound a certain way and they get relegated. They like my friends kept getting to these relegated to these secondary roles. And I was like, this sucks. Like they deserve, they're brilliant. They deserve to have leading roles the same way that their white counterparts do. So that was part of the reason for Mm. having this panoply of very specific Asian characters in there. And then I guess, sorry, I'm rambling, uh, getting, (laughs) getting, getting to talk about, uh, the ongoing fascinating legacy of intra-Asian racism, which people don't mm-hmm. talk about in the West, like uh, the ongoing hatred between China and Japan and Japan and Korea and the crazy uh, deeply seated anti-black rhetoric that exists in a bunch of these cultures, like these really deeply entrenched racial politics that I think we don't discuss very often in the West, don't think about, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what was striking for me, I mean, I've seen a production of White Pearl, I've, I've read it several times as well, is is how nuanced the politics is. And I don't mean this question to sound patronising at all, but how, how did you, how were you able to write those variances? Did you draw these people from life? Is there, did you research, like, how, how do you, because there was nothing sketched or caricatured about it. It was, it was deeply nuanced. Part of it, I think, is lived experience. Like, I do feel like I couldn't have written it if I didn't, if I wasn't Asian myself and if I didn't know a lot of these, at Mm. least sort of know people from these cultures deeply. And, Mm. and, and part of it was research. Like each time we did the play, talking to people about their experiences, 
iterating on each draft as we, you know, one of the great boons of the play is that you get this global village together of people who have all these different lived experiences, and then you talk to them about it, and then you feed that into the next draft of the play. So by the time you read that draft, like we'd had, I don't know how many, five different costs of brilliant Asian women from all over the world who had all given their input on how people sound and what their experience was. And yeah, I think that impacts the work enormously. Mm. It's not just me. It's like the cultural input of everybody who's working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Just keeps accumulating. Yeah. Totally. Which I think is the beauty of theater, you know, yeah. like it's a palimpsest that's the result of the workshopping and production process. It's not just the work of some individual. Mm. Yeah. And the magic of what can happen when we steer away from what is a very much an Australian culture of first production only. Totally. Yeah, exactly. That you keep building on the work. Yeah. yeah. I said this to Kate Mulvaney when we were talking about when she was in that chair about how I, I've heard playwriting described as you're either a gardener or an architect. <laughs> And I, I don't know, I said to Kat, I don't know if I entirely agree with it, but I liked the, I, I liked what it was scratching at, which is that, you know, I think some playwrights find things organically and play around and, and others sort of build it like a house. What's your kind of approach to playwriting? Do you have a, do you have a process? Oh, wow. That's such a great metaphor. Isn't it? Yeah. I think I used to very much be a gardener and then the more I've done it, the more I've become an architect. Mm. Um. And part of that is necessity, you know? As I started writing things that were further and further outside of my own experience or my frame of reference, the level of like care and work and research and pre-structuring that I had to do for the work, uh, for the plays just got a lot bigger. For example, like this play that I wrote for American Shakespeare Center, which is about the life of an African-American man in the 19th century. Like, I can't write from my own frame of reference for that. Like, I just have no context. So there you have to be an architect. There you have to do sca scaffolding and cultural consultation and research. And um, so I think, yeah, I've become more of an architect, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, great. I mean, I, I've also observed with people that when, when the idea or the set of ideas become more and more complex, the need to structure the work totally becomes more pressing. Totally, um, yeah. Yeah. And the bigger the story gets, right? Like yeah. when the story is, the thing about White Pearl is for all of its really big themes, it's a it's a very contained story. Like it has Aristotelian unity. It's in mm. one office. It's in a linear timeline. Um, it's, it's all contained, um, which means that the scaffolding is there. You don't have to do a lot of scaffolding at mm. a time. Yeah. I love that somebody in this conversation series has used the phrase Aristotelian <laughs> unity. It's, it's great. Oh no! No, it's great. You've just you've just elevated this us. Is I love my it. bloody wanky. <laughs> no, it's um, so, dramaturgy it's, degree. <laughs> it's so it's it's so great. Look, I did dramaturgy. <laughs> okay, too, so okay, fine. you're you're on the same I, level I, as I, me. I, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, are you a research nut? Absolutely. Yeah, I get so much out of doing research, and sometimes I forget that. Um, when I'm getting stuck, I just have to go back to research. Um, I find it so invigorating because you you latch on to tiny details in the research mm. that, you know, if you were writing an academic paper on the subject, you would never include that detail, but it will just wiggle its way into your mind and be like, oh, that's so interesting that yeah. this thing happened and, and that you can structure a whole scene or a whole play around that incidental detail. I, d I just love it. And I love, um, you know, like the only reason that I got into playwriting 
is that I like that it's a refracted voice mm -hmm. like it's a panoply of voices and you can change that voice all the time I think as a novelist you kind of have to work out what your voice is at least for that novel and maybe this not this is a reductive thing to say but I, I like that you articulate multiple voices through multiple characters and and so you can constantly go back to the research and be like if this character lived in this time period with this cultural input what would they sound like the the level of linguistic play that you get to do think you only get from doing really deep research and that's really fun <laughs> absorb and absorb yeah 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 and like you know if you want to write legalese like you read a bunch of supreme court documents and then you like absorb it into your bloodstream and, and you write it <laughs> yeah well i mean that's true of your work yeah i mean there is there is a lot of jargon there is a lot of language specific to industry yeah uh or, or profession um across your body of work totally and i like i like that you know, that stuff is about language obscuring meaning, mm. particularly corporate jargon. Uh, and I find that fascinating as you do research into a hyper-specific field that you'll start to realize what the words are behind the words. And then co-opting that language for art feels like mm. a really subversive thing to do. Absolutely. And what's interesting is at times language obscures meaning, but other times language is sort of designed to be a tool. Mm. And then you kind of as you so brilliantly do in a lot of your work, show the tool failing. Right. <laughs> do you know, like yeah, yeah, that actually totally. we've actually built the wrong tool. Yeah, so. yeah, I love that stuff. I think it's so great. And particularly, you know, like people, I love staging people between disciplines trying to communicate and failing, yeah. like somebody trying to talk tech jargon to somebody who doesn't understand mm. it. I think, yeah, that stuff is really germane dramatically. Mm. Hey, just because you've said it, let's talk disciplines for a moment. I mean, one of the reasons I, I gave that very long <laughs> your very long bio, which is brilliant, is, I mean, you are you are a multidisciplinary artist, and you you know I think we don't often talk enough about form when we're talking mm. about playwriting, and we don't often talk about in these sorts of conversations the fact that it's this work is designed to then be activated live. Right. It's not imagined. It's imagined on paper for a live medium. How much does that the the world of the play, the aesthetic world, the visual world, the form of the play feed into what you're writing? I mean, I think there's sometimes this conception that like, because I worked for a very long time as a designer and a multidisciplinary artist before I started writing plays, that there would be a lot of visual information in my plays or that I would think very deeply about the aesthetics of the world or uh, this, you know, the setting of the world. But I actually put almost no mm. information about what the world looks like or sounds like in my plays. I put the bare minimum. And I think that came from as a designer, I always liked that it was collaborative. I liked that you had your tiny, you had your QLab plot, you had the yeah. things that you were composing and, and the director would give you notes, but you're not responsible for the whole thing. Like you're responsible for your very small corner of the production. And so I think of myself the same way as a player, like as a playwright, I think I'm just responsible for the script. And then everything else that gets layered on top of it is the whole production. Mm -hmm. um, Having said that, the the element of my multidisciplinary practice that I think has fed into my work is that I always think about it being staged. I, I never think about it as a static document. I always yeah. think of it as like a living, breathing palimpsest that's going to have lots of input piled on top of it. So you want to, you imagine it live coming out of people's mouths. mouths. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
maybe this is sort of overindulgent, but I'm going to kind <laughs> yes. of. I, I, I just have this instinct to ask you this because I haven't asked it of anyone. Do you imagine people moving on the stage? Like oh. when you're writing dialogue, do you do you, do you write distance? Do you, do you do you see it kind of not pres- not in a pres- pres- prescriptive way, but do you? That's so interesting. Like I would say, not consciously, but then sometimes we'll be in rehearsal and a director will come up to me and be like, hey, this blocking isn't working. And I was like, and I'll I'll just know, I'll be like, that's because they have to be sitting in this bit. Like, uh, yeah. I know that they have to be sitting and he needs to be to her right. And otherwise the scene isn't going to work. And that's like, indif- I don't plan that ahead of yeah. time, but there's something baked in the writing of it that I have some, I don't know, spatial awareness of how mm. the scene's going to play out. But I'm not actively thinking about it. It just... Yeah, it's weird. It's it's really hard to articulate. But when you put it on its feet, it's like, oh, actually, no, I did have a very firm sense of who was in the space where and why. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some people, right? Some people, when they write, they must think he enters stage left and, and they write that stuff in their scripts. Yeah, I mean, I just know, uh, I, I mean, I don't, as a director, I go, sometimes I read a play and I just feel spatial distances or someone's right. or standard. It's just this kind of instinctive thing. Yeah. And I, it just occurred to me then to ask you about, whether a playwright has that. Right. And I'm some people do and they like yeah. make it explicit. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's I think it's so deeply baked in your uh bones as a theater maker mm. that you don't necessarily articulate it and it just c- kind of comes out. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. The next uh, the next thing I write I'm going to be like, remember when Dino said, "Do you yeah. imagine this?" <laughs> now I'm going <laughs> to give you a complex I know. you know where. <laughs> I'm like, am I imagining this spatially? Or <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's um, great. Hey, let's take a jump. I I mean, w- one of the things that I find really interesting about your work is this this extreme interest in corporate culture. Mm. Where does that come from? I mean, I think it's it's two things. I'm really interested in um, monsters of capitalism, and yeah. I always have been, as characters. Uh, and the best places to find them are in corporate culture. Mm. But I think, generally speaking, I'm interested in macrocosmic phenomena, and it's very difficult to talk about late-stage capitalism or globalization or climate change or any of these sort of like meta-objects without talking about uh, corporations. Yeah. And power structures. And power structures. Exactly. So I always come back to, even though sometimes I try to move away from like setting things in an office or setting things in meetings, like that's where big world altering decisions get made. Mm. So I find myself repeatedly coming back to them and staging them. Um, but also I'm interested in, the moral and ethical compromises that people make for money. Mm. And again, it's hard to talk about that without talking about systemic corporate culture. Um, yeah. yeah. And I don't know, like I'm interested in subcultures mm. and each industry is its own subculture with its own rules, its own language, its own cults, mm. its own fetishes. Like you take any industry in the world and you put a microscope on it and you go, oh, that's weird. The, pe- <laughs> the way that people behave in that industry mm. is bloody weird. The language systems within yeah. that. Yeah. And the the behaviors and norms, mm. like it's, it is cultic 
and therefore I think like really theatrically interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at look at the our world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Theater, yeah. Right? Like it has its own its own patois yeah. and its own rituals and its own uh, Yeah, it's endlessly fascinating. You take any industry in the world and and you can find those mm. weird dramatically germane subcultural I don't know idiosyncrasies. But it's almost like I mean I look at your plays and I go you you you're really interrogating often through the lens of the super specific. Mm really the failure of big systems. Yeah. Um, systems that we that, that are pillars or that we think are pillars. Yeah. Uh, somebody, a journalist I was talking to was like, it's systems fiction, which is a term I'd never heard before. But uh, yeah, I think I'm writing systems fiction, um, which sometimes is through the lens of hyper-specific small stories, but speaks to larger systemic failures think yeah mm. it's a really interesting term I'd never heard before um yeah <laughs> yeah and I guess what I mean what, what that opens up is it's it's technology it's mm. globalization it's um and, and something that I think you said which is quite interesting it's 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 ethics too mm. I mean ethics are big in your work yeah definitely I mean and that's the thing often the starting point for me of writing a play is like how does an individual actor behave ethically within this system? And usually I can't answer it in the course of a play. I sort of pose that question, like, look at all these individuals acting within the system who is behaving ethically. Mm. And usually the more you drill down into it, the more you're like, in, in a culture of late stage capitalism and like, you know, social media and, you know, cataclysmic environmental collapse, there is no way to behave ethically as an actor within that system. So how do you behave comparatively mm. ethically? And that's where the the play sometimes lands. Is like, this is the person who's behaving the most ethically mm. given the system that they exist in. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember a few years ago, there was that whole thing in the arts about who can you accept money from? Mm. You know, we had that whole <laughs> I know. scandalous period of... Who is it? Is it okay to just take money from anyone because we make art, or is it you know, are we ethically bound in a certain way? Sure. Um, it's it's really interesting because workplaces so often allow that lens into yeah. that into that ethical dilemma. Totally. And it's you know, and and you do that with the kind of corporate culture you're looking at. Totally, because it's the question is fundamentally like you exist within capitalism. Mm. What moral and ethical compromises do you make to be complicit in that system? And you can't live outside of it. So, uh, how do you? I don't know. How do you square up the existential quandary of being a capitalist actor? Which is why often my characters like go to the extremes. You mm. know, like they're they're very very evil monsters of capitalism. So that by comparison, some of the other actors who are still behaving monstrously look comparatively decent <laughs> yeah. and then the play like de deconstructs that yeah yeah <laughs> do you have uh your alternative to capitalism or is it about existing as ethically as possible within capitalism uh i would say uh it's about uh adopting models from different systems like socialism mm. that would serve us better that are more humane um and about prioritizing other things on a 
actually, no, I would say it's about having systems of global regulation. I mm-hmm. think that's the biggest thing. There is... Uh, to allow consistency. To, to allow for uh, inequality to be lessened. Yeah. I think inequity is a universal uh, human condition that can never be eradicated, but I think its impacts on us as humans and on the environment can be greatly lessened through systems change. Mm. Um, and with the, our failure as a human society comes from the fact that we are not implementing that system systemic change on a global level. We're still mm-hmm. thinking of ourselves as nation states and trying to trying and failing to regulate within those structures mm-hmm. rather than thinking of ourselves as a global society and accountable to each other as global citizens. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the nation state has become a silo like the the corporate space. Totally. Or- and is completely hasn't caught up with the reality of a global economy. Yeah. You know? or multinational corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just, I mean, my, my whole family works in international policy, so I think about this all the time, like their failure to, how difficult it is to get any sort of sense of global governance. Mm. Um, so yeah, if we could implement certain socialist elements into global policy, that protected more people and protected our environment, I think that would go a long way to reducing harm. Yeah. That's my broad thinking on the subject. I love it. <laughs> I love your broad thinking on the subject. Uh, hey, tell me about these these family members in global <laughs> policy. Oh, they don't really like for me to talk about them. Um, <laughs> all I'll say is my dad's a climate change scientist. Amazing. And my sister is an international trade lawyer. Mm. And they do much more important work than I do. So I try to... Um, raise a little bit of cultural awareness around the issues that they deal with on mm. a daily basis. Yeah. And without talking about them, do you draw things from their world or things that you've discussed? Um, I mean, I think I draw my ethics and my politics yeah. from their work. But in terms of like, you know, I'm I'm not like taking uh, cases that my sister's working on and mm. turning them into plays, you know. I, yeah, I try and course. keep that stuff... Uh, yeah, I, as, as a rule of thumb, as a playwright, I try not to be too parasitical off my own life full stop. Mm. I, I know everybody as an artist has to sort of develop their own relationship to that, but I've just found that it keeps me much saner as a human being to not really draw on my own life. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about some of these other plays. So Golden Shield is one I'd like to talk about and Slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Because you start to really scratch at these these things that keep popping up. Can you tell us a little bit about those two plays? Sure. So Golden Shield is a... It's a play ultimately about two Chinese-American sisters who have a really complicated relationship with, with each other. And they get embroiled in this sort of sprawling, huge lawsuit where an American tech conglomerate is getting sued for its purported collusion in helping to build... Uh, system of online censorship in China. Uh, and the play sort of examines how complicit they are in building that system um, while these two sisters are grappling with what it means to exist in the Chinese-American diaspora and a whole bunch of other things about, you know, freedom and individual liberty within uh, online culture and how much governments should have a say in, and uh, governments and corporations should have a say in in what access we get 
to online content. Slaughterhouse is a monologue play that is very much a satire of uh, ethical eating, and it's set. Uh, it's sort of conflicting accounts of the same event that happens at an ethical eating startup, and we start to see how um, the startup is a slaughterhouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the best way to put it. Yeah, great. Yeah. I will uh, leave people to discover both those <laughs> plays. But again, you can see the, the kind of the look at systems, the look at structures, the look at um, dilemma um, across that work. And they're very interesting plays, anyone listening, to find them and read them. Yep. And Golden Shield will have a production next year, which is nice. Fantastic. In Sydney? Yeah. No, in, in the US. Okay. Sorry, that's not relevant to this one. <laughs> if you want to come to New York. We haven't seen it in Sydney, yeah. have we? Uh, no, it was only on in Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. But it'll be on Off-Broadway next year. Yay. Amazing. It's been announced. Yes. Great. Yes. <laughs> the dates are confirmed. Great. <laughs> which is really exciting. People are being vaccinated. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. Totally. Everything's going back to normal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which is nice. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, just, I mean, speaking of New York and all that, we're, we're seeing... We're talking about White Pearl now, and you've had you had a production in Parramatta. You've had it's it's coming back to the Sydney Theatre Company this year. Uh, it's been on the Royal Court, and what we've seen in recent years in Australia is s- such a broadening of the conversation around. I'm allergic to the D word, but the inclusiveness sure. conversation and the and the the work on stage actually representing what's going on in the country. But let's jump back like five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you've kind of got these ideas and you're this artist. And I mean, what was the Australia then like as a playwright wanting to to expand the voice on the stage? Well, I wasn't a playwright at the time, you know. Yeah. I was just like a indie theatre maker, mostly working as a designer. But even then I felt this real Darth in... Uh, the kinds of stories that I was interested in that I wanted to work on. That's the whole reason I went to school in New York. Mm. I looked over there and I saw this incredible wave of uh, African-American, Asian-American playwrights doing this urgent, vital work that we would sometimes get imported over here for the odd festival. But by and large, we were still a very uh, white settler theater dominated by uh, imports of pretty conservative Pulitzer Prize winners or remounts of Shakespeare. And it's it's worth noting that as much as that conversation has changed, it hasn't gone away. Like yeah. there is still this desperate clinging to the same tired Western canonical classics in this country that has to do with um, pandering to our audience base or thinking that our audience base isn't ready for these more adventurous works that have really been championed by indie theater makers in this country yeah. that main stage theatres are only now starting to take risks on. And perhaps realising that our audiences are actually more adventurous than we've... Yeah. Absolutely. But also that you can't expand your audience base if you keep pandering to the same audience yeah. base. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I agree with you that it has changed tremendously. And even in the past year, I've been mm. stunned and excited by... Uh, the incredible work that's being done all around the country, but we still import a lot of our plays, Mm. you know? We still rely on uh, Black and Asian and Latinx 
playwrights overseas to provide us with these daring works that we then import and, and try to transpose to our cultural context. And I think that comes from a lack of investment in our own playwriting. Um, and certainly, I'm not sure that I could have had the career that I have if I had been here the whole time that I was working as a playwright. Like I needed the ecosystem of New York in order to develop as a writer. And so part of like the work that I'm trying to do with APT and mm. running all these playwriting groups is making sure that we invest in our own playwriting. So the conversation isn't just about costing and representation, it's about uh, representing our own stories on stage. Mm. Yeah. I think that's so right. And, you know, it seems like we've had these sort of a series of reckonings, but the one that we're kind of still grappling with is how do our playwrights tell those stories that we're now telling? Absolutely. You know, and, and what pathways need to be put in place for that to happen? Totally. And, yeah. you know, like um, with Louise coming in at APT, mm. uh, part of the thing that she articulated to us a couple of weeks ago, which I, I hope I'm not um, taking words out of her mouth or misinterpreting what she said, but she was talking to us about how it's it's such a bigger problem around infrastructure in this country and cultural competency in developing work. It has to do with getting more directors of color, more dramaturgs of color, ha and ha people who have the cultural competency to develop this kind of work in Australia. Um, and main stage companies taking risks in productions. It's, it's, a, it's a much bigger issue. And it's nice that we have this reinvigorated national body whose sole job it is. Mm to focus on that mm. um, because I think that's really been missing in the ecosystem. Um, uh, yeah. An organization whose sole job it is to like find those plays, create a pipeline for them to get developed and into production. Yeah. 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 Rather than being a development factory for exactly for work. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Because yeah. obviously that comes with its own investments and its own hang ups. Like, mm. and I think that's doing a disservice to the incredible, playwrights that we have in this country who deserve to get their work staged on bigger stages. Yeah. It's interesting, like, you know, you speak to a lot of, uh, I speak to a lot of playwrights and, and a lot of playwrights in order to be programmed will write to certain conditions. Mm. You know, we've all heard that don't write more than four people, don't totally. write, you know, don't write seven locations. Um, in a way, White Pearl may not have been programmed with that cast size and that scale if it hadn't kind of gone through the, the pathway exactly. it had. I had this exact question from, I was running a playwriting group for, well, in Britain they call it BAME playwrights, mm. playwrights of color over it in Manchester. And one of them asked me like, I'm really struggling with, you know, the, the scale of this work that we we're creating is so big and I can't imagine the theater staging it. Should I scale it back now so that maybe in hopes that someone will program it? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, you have to trust that write your work with artistic integrity and somebody will take the risk of programming it because you can always scale back in production, but imagine self-censoring or scaling back at the mm. start of your creative output because you're scared that it won't get programmed somewhere. But I think a lot of that is going on. There's this sort of like, even though there is economic scarcity in the Australian theater, that shouldn't mean that there's scarcity of artistry or vision, mm. you know? And those two things, it's a false pa parallel. Like 
just because you have less money doesn't mean that you can't do things to scale. It just takes, I don't know, an open mind. Yeah. And we managed to do the first production of White Pearl, even though it's a big cost, on a much smaller budget. Like, I, I just think it is possible. And, you know, with Golden Shield, like, that's a play that I never thought would get produced. And it would, the original draft of the play had, like, 15 characters in it. I mean, it's, yeah. it, go, it spans five countries. It's just huge. But I just had to trust that, like, that scale was commensurate to the scale of the story that I was mm. telling it, and somebody somewhere would want to stage it. And they did. <laughs> and they did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again next year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we often talk about the kind of the Australian versus overseas and, and, and talk about it in broad, in broad brushstrokes. But what's interesting about White Pearl is you've, you've had it produced in the UK and you've mm. had it produced here. So it's actually quite a useful lens into some of the ecological differences. Totally. Um, can, can you talk about some of those things? Just, yeah. I mean, yeah. So we did the play in three countries in pretty quick succession mm. and... Uh, I mean, yeah, it exposed a lot about the different theater cultures. I feel like, you know, for for better or worse, the UK theater culture is still a very literary theater culture um, in the sense that, what do I mean by that? I mean that they, they love erudite, well-written plays, even when they are... Uh, risk-taking and the Royal Court is probably one of the most risk-taking theaters in London. Um, there is this uh, investment in rigorous language. Uh, and then in Australia, uh, we just, we still have space for broad comedy in a mm. way that I didn't find of the British or American productions, very different qualities of humor, you know? Like there's a, a ton of physical humor in the production. There's um, but you know, like other, other differences, like when we did it at the Royal Court, we could afford to smash a glass door on stage every night and yeah. the running cost was like a thousand pounds a night versus here. Like that may have been our whole budget. Yeah. I shouldn't say that, but like, you yeah. know, like it, it, there's the scale of what you can do in a subsidized British theater is completely different to what you can do yeah. in an Australian theater. And it's the same play. Um, but you can do the play with not much money or you can do the play with a lot of money and ultimately it's the, still the same play. Um, and then in the States too, like uh, certain elements of the play were very, uh, came to the fore more because they are part of the well, well-worn conventions of American drama. Like the black office comedy um, with all of the stuff that that entails in the American theater, all of those tropes just came out in a way in the American production in both good and bad ways, I think, that I didn't expect. Um, but again, like, you know, it's, I think it's telling that White Pearl was programmed in Washington, D.C., and not in New York. Like, that already speaks volumes to the ecosystem there. And I, I struggle to believe that this play would go on in New York um, Why is that? It's like a little risky. Mm. It's risky to program. Um, and in a way that Golden Shield actually, even though it's bigger in scale, is not as risky to program. Um, 
it it deals with race in a potentially inflammatory way, which is something that I acutely aware of and something that in Britain, like the critics really, um, there was a really varied response. A lot of the critics in Britain responded really well. And some of them were like, this doesn't handle issues of race responsibly, which I just think is a really, mm. which was not at all the response in Australia. So yeah, just interesting cultural differences there around how we talk about race and how we're comfortable talking about race on stage. Yeah. Mm. And do you think, when you say that wasn't the response in Australia, n- not to say that the response should be that some positive, some negative, but is that because we're in a different part of the of the pathway to talking about race on stage? I think potentially, yeah. I mean, you think about the fact that when White Pearl, like for an example, in in Britain and in the US, there is a long storied history of very complex, nuanced work by British, uh, Asian British and Asian American playwrights, you know, for many, many years. We don't really have the same history in this country. So I don't think critics have the same language to talk about the work. Um, and I do think that, like, the fact that it Obviously, they were all different productions, so it's impossible to say how much of it is the politics and how much of it is the production. But the fact that it got a pretty universally positive response here, I don't think is disconnected to the fact that we have pretty much exclusively white reviewers here. Mm. And we have mm. we hadn't at that point really developed a language to talk about works that deal with race in a potentially inflammatory way. And some of the most interesting and most damning critiques of the play in Britain were by Asian reviewers. And I find that really interesting that they felt like the play didn't live up to um, the task that it set itself. Mm. And I'm really grateful for that response. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting to me how we've, you know, in Australia, like very recently, like in the last five years, we've, we've significantly accelerated the broadening of voices on stages. Totally. And yet, at the same time, we've also become increasingly more globalised mm. and interconnected. And, I mean, we always have in theatre in, in, in so far as we've reached into the canon, but I'm talking about contemporary writing. So I was having this conversation to someone the other day about gender in, in mm. works and, 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 and trans, you know, works. It's it's almost like to fast track we have to skip the step that a lot of people have had in that playwriting. Yeah. You know, we can't just go into the trauma trans play, which would have happened if we'd had started That's that so conversation. True. We have to jump. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's the same kind of when we're. Within, I know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so spot on. I think about like Asian American plays. There were years and years of sad immigrant plays, yeah. sad immigrant family plays. Yeah. And I think in Australia, we just had to skip it. We just had to, <laughs> to yeah. leapfrog it to catch up to the rest of the world. And I think you're right on a lot of issues of identity. Um, which is kind of the theme of White Pearl, too. It's like you're accountable to a globalized discourse, right? Mm. Which means that you can't afford to live in a hermetically sealed national bubble anymore. You have to be talking about things the same way the rest of the world are talking about them. To, obvi- to honestly, I think sometimes the detriment of nuance mm. because things are applicable in some cultural contexts that they aren't in others. You know, what a really good example of this is like, Uh, issues of trans rights in Thailand where there has historically always been a third gender. Yeah. um, And they are now grappling with having to talk about trans rights uh, with a globalized discourse that is not applicable to the cultural context. There's, there's, yeah. So I think it's, Mm. it's both, uh, it's both an exciting opportunity as a Australian playwright and a, 
a risk that mm. in trying to write for a global audience, you miss the specificity of the Australian mm. experience. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before that I mean you're 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 excited about the new playwriting organization. You're you're seeing these changes in Australia. What other hopes would you have for the Australian playwriting uh, or theatre industry more broadly? I would like for us to stop doing the same classics, mm. particularly American classics, because I just think we have done them enough. And, you know, honestly, a bunch of Eurocentric classics. There is a storied, fascinating history of world plays that don't get done, and we still keep doing the same plays from Russian, French, British, American playwrights in English-speaking countries, and I think it speaks to a really limited worldview. I would like for us to stop doing those plays. I'd like for us to do less Shakespeare, mm. and I would like for us to have a renewed investment in local work, which, again, I think is all happening, but it's unfortunate that I think theaters think the economic reality is that you have to do those tentpole Chekhov, Shakespeare, uh, in order to uh, musicals, in order to make buck, um, and I, I actually don't think that's true. Mm. I think your audience will grow with you if you program good work. Mm. Um, and surely audiences get tired of going to see the fifteenth production of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, uh, I don't know. I and maybe that's like falsely optimistic of me, but I just would like to see us invest in new stories by Australian writers who are reflective of the incredible multiplicity and diversity of this mm. country. And for us to really, really bake in consideration of First Nations issues in every process that we engage in, even if it's not a First Nations story, like the reality of living as a white settler nation and the ingrained colonial politics of everything that we do should be the starting point for every conversation in a production, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we haven't come to terms with it as a, as <laughs> at a, all, as as a, a nation. nation. Yeah. Uh, as artists, you'd think we'd hopefully put that at the, at the base of... Everything yeah. that we do, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Um, one of the things that is, is sort of constantly said about theatre is that it's this oldest thing that will always survive. However, um, you know, I, I've certainly observed that there seems to be we're, we're at a tension point. Mm. And I wonder if you think at all about is theatre itself changing? Is, is, is what theatre is and where it happens starting to shift? Does it need to shift? I think of course it is, of course it is. And you only have to look at the increasing digitization and streaming yeah. productions to know that the economic reality is changing and so the nature of the art form will change. Do I think that's a bad thing? No. Mm. I think theater should be, yeah. should be reflective of our society. But I also uh, have credulity towards any idea that it's old, therefore will continue to exist. Yeah, exactly right. Including the planet, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll just be, it'll yeah, just be there. It'll yeah, just it's be hurt. there. Yeah. It's been here for so long, how could it go away? Yeah. Which just is not how the tide of history works at all. Yeah. But I think if, if people are impassioned about and invested in the art form, we should try to preserve what makes it great. Mm. And ultimately what makes it great is its liveness, whatever form that takes. 
I think our relationship as human beings to what liveness and uh, materiality is versus what simulation is and what digitization is, mm -hmm. that's going to change a lot, already is changing a lot. So we just got to adapt and work out what in our new transhumanist yeah. uh, <laughs> technologically pseudo, pseudo digital yeah, selves, totally. like uh, what liveness is and what theater is in that context. Mm. But I think that, you know, that, that tendency towards immediacy in storytelling, whatever form it takes, that's not going to go away. Yeah. Because it's just, it's tangible and immediate in a way that no other art form is. Mm. I think maybe it'll change, you know, how we do it. But that immediacy is not going to go away, I hope. Yeah. What's liveness for you? Uh, experiencing time together. And proximity. Mm. And proximity can take lots of different forms, whether it's emotional proximity, physical proximity, um, and I think that I've definitely had experiences where I'm not in the same room with someone, but I suddenly feel that tangible proximity to them and to the story that's being told. So I think we have to preserve that in our form at all costs. And what a beautiful way to finish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank this you. chat. Thank you for joining us, Felicia King. Thanks. Lovely. Thanks for listening to Staging the Nation. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to our podcast. See you next time. Station the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatre's Parramatta. Executive producer, Joanne Key. Producer and technical director, Daniel Holsworth. Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening.